Okay, folks, welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chris Joy, and I'm joined by Yingyi and Chen, and we both work with Coolabar Capital Investments. Coolabar is a global fixed income manager, and we're responsible for running $7.6 billion in funds under management. We record this podcast once a month, and the purpose of the podcast is to unpack tricky financial market issues of the day. Now, as a result of listener feedback, we are going to make the format a lot more live and unscripted. So Ying is, why don't you kick off with questions and I'll have a crack at answering them. Chris, by way of a quick update for our listeners, what sort of yields are we seeing across our portfolios right now? Yeah, Ying is, yields have generally remained pretty high, notwithstanding the very strong performance we've seen in portfolios since, in particular, October last year. In the cash in hand strategies targeting 1% or 1.5% over the RBA cash rate, we're currently running annual yields to maturity of about 5%. In our longshore credit fund, the annual yield to maturity is higher at around 8.4%. In our long duration active composite bond strategy, the annual yield to maturity is around 6.5%. In the Active Australian Hybrid Fund that we run for beta shares, which has the ASX ETF ticker HBRD, the cash running yield is about 6.5%, including franking credits. And in our new bloating rate high yield fund, the cash running yield is about 8%. Please know that current yields are no guide to future returns, and you should read the product disclosure statements for all products to better understand their risks. So Chris, how did our portfolios perform over March and April? Yeah, Ying is pretty well. In March, uh, we started off strongly, and then the turbulence created by Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse created some choppy conditions mid-month, but we finished the month very strongly, and returns have been extremely robust over the April month to date. In the month of March, long-term government bond yields declined on the back of the risk-off tone, and this pushed up the value of fixed-rate bonds. Our only long-duration strategy, which has an average of about 5.5 years of fixed-rate bond exposure, called the Active Composite Bond Fund, returned a solid 2.8% in March, net of fees, and it's flat in the April month to date. Over March and the April month to date, our new Coolabar Floating Rate High Yield Fund has returned about 0.9% net of fees, and all of our cash in hand strategies were up over March and April, and this is through to the 19th of April, by about 0.4 to 0.5% net of fees. I also have our Longshore Credit Fund up about 1.1% net of fees over the period March and April, inclusive. So while returns are pretty good, please know that past performance is no guide to future returns, and please read the product disclosure statements to better understand the risks. So Chris, we've been forecasting a US recession since January 2022. Can you talk Alice's through whether this is still our base case? Yeah, Ying, as our uh, US recession forecasting model has been predicting a recession or late 2023, early 24, since January 22. The model probabilities are very high, historically speaking. In fact, when we run it back to 1950, the model has never had a false positive vis-a-vis -vis recession when the probabilities have been this high. Of course, we've already had a technical recession in the US in 2022, if you accept the definition of two quarters of negative GDP growth. Now, we're recording this on the 23rd of April, and I believe the Federal Reserve for the first time adopted a central case of a recession last week, which accords with our outlook. To be clear, there are still others that think the US won't go into recession. They include Goldman Sachs, which is looking for a soft landing. We've also built recession forecasting models for Europe, and they are similarly anticipating recession in the European Union. And our chief macro strategist, Kieran Davies, who I think has been one of the most accurate macro forecasters in the world since 2021. And Kieran thinks it's likely that the global economy will also experience a recession. 
Of course, the wonder down under has some unique tailwinds, including very strong migration fuel population growth, a relatively low and competitive Aussie dollar, elevated commodity prices, a massive government-funded national infrastructure investment program, and a very strong budget at the federal level, which looks like it'll record a deficit of only about 5 to $10 billion on our numbers this financial year. So it's not clear yet that Australia will experience a recession. But what we do know is that for central banks to get a very elevated core inflation under control, which globally means reducing it from circa 5 to 8% down to the central bank's legislated 2% targets, they're going to have to engineer very sharp demand destruction and a very big increase in unemployment rates from around 3-point-something percent in economies like Australia and the US towards 5% or higher in order to reduce pressure on wages growth and constrain the demand side drivers that are clearly powering consumer price inflation, and particularly services inflation. So unfortunately, Ying, as the outlook for the world is not a good one, and we think this could be a protracted multi-year cycle that involves a lot of deleveraging, and in particular, the destruction of businesses that were conditioned on the availability of the low rates for long paradigm, or perpetually cheap money. We really are going to need to see a fundamental rewiring of the economy's architecture that is going to involve a lot of Darwinian creative destruction and the rise of business models that can survive and thrive in a world in which interest rates are going to remain structurally high. And Chris, I suppose a related theme would be corporate defaults. And as you know, Coolabar has been forecasting a big default cycle. Can you talk us through how that is playing out? Yeah, that's right, Ying. As in late 2021, we argued that there'd be a dramatic increase in short-term cash rates, a very big rise in long-term government bond yields, a 30% fall in the value of US equities, a 100 to 150 basis point increase in investment-grade credit spreads, the collapse of cryptocurrencies, a record fall in Aussie house prices, and a recession and the default cycle that you've mentioned. Of course, this was all to be driven by persistently problematic inflation. And sadly, Ying, as the default cycle is absolutely playing out right now, in this year to date, we've seen the largest number of corporate defaults globally since 2009, according to Standard & Poor's. We've even seen household names like Blackstone default on real estate bonds in Europe, We've heard of Brookfield defaulting on commercial property bonds in the US. Blackstone's had to freeze the biggest of its real estate funds in the US, gating redemptions, which means clients can't take their money out. In Australia, we've seen a big increase in business insolvencies from around 200 a month at the nadir of the pandemic to now seven to 800 businesses failing every single month. In the US, corporate insolvencies are already at their highest level since 2010. And back here in Australia, we've seen a really big increase in the default rates on non-bank residential mortgage-backed securities issued by the likes of Pepper, Resimac, and Latrobe. To be clear, these RMBS bonds are not themselves in default. We're talking about the misrepayments reported on the thousands of individual home loans that back them. So the global default cycle ying has, has well and truly arrived, and we think it's only going to get a lot worse. Now, we obviously don't think this is an issue at all for high-grade government bonds or very, very highly rated bank bonds and corporate bonds. But as you move down the capital structure and into weaker issuers, so here we're talking about sub-investment grade bonds, high-yield bonds, unrated bonds, and private credit and loans, we think we're going to see enormous stress, losses, and very, very deep illiquidity. And this is playing out right now. One example of which was the uh, junk-rated hybrids issued by Credit Suisse, which were completely wiped out in March. And sadly, many individual Australian investors and even institutional Australian fund managers had bought these Credit Suisse hybrids in their search for yield, which was really a reach for risk. Speaking of Credit Suisse, can you talk us through its collapse, which was obviously top of mind for global markets? 
Yeah, Ines, we've been negative on Credit Suisse since uh, February 2021, when we formally advised our clients in writing that they should exit their Credit Suisse private bank exposures, and we did that repeatedly. Our credit researchers put a formal blanket ban on long exposures to Credit Suisse in 2021, and we were actually short-selling their senior bonds in euros in 2022, expecting their spreads to gap wider, which they did. But while we didn't like Credit Suisse's business model, and it had been a perennial basket case, accented by the Green Seal disaster, it was remediating and reforming itself. And there was nothing actually fundamentally wrong with it in March 2023. Credit Suisse was really an engineered, speculative hedge fund or short seller attack. With very modest amounts of money, they were able to push CS's credit default swap spreads a lot wider and its bond spreads wider, which were arguably manipulated, hot on the heels of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, as signals of pending doom. There was definitely a firm conviction on the street that hedge funds were manipulating media coverage. And there was some sensationalist reporting of some very old news about how the Saudi National Bank could not increase its shareholding beyond circa 9.9% for regulatory reasons, which on the day it was published triggered a staggering 30% collapse in Credit Suisse's share price. This contrived fear then precipitated a high-velocity digital deposit run to the point where the Swiss had no choice but to force through a sale to UBS. Crucially, Credit Suisse's deposits were government-guaranteed, its senior bonds were guaranteed, and its tier two bonds were also fully protected. They did not wear any losses. However, the hybrids were completely wiped out and equity lost 90% of its value from 12 months ago. The irony is the Swiss could have easily prevented all of this from happening by just making it clear that uh, CS's deposits were in fact government guaranteed when the run started to build some momentum. You can't lose money on the deposits. There's not going to be a run. Instead, the Swiss government had to give UBS and CS 150 billion Swiss francs worth of cheap loans and indemnify UBS from 9 billion of losses on CS after UBS wore the first 5 billion. Thereafter, the Swiss also had to wear all losses on Credit Suisse 50-50 with UBS. It was actually an amazing deal for UBS. They paid 3 billion Swiss francs for a business that was probably worth 20 to 30 billion with a lot of the downside insulated by the Swiss taxpayer and a ton of cheap loans from the Swiss National Bank. UBS now becomes the rolled gold monopoly too big to fail bank in Switzerland, and is now more government guaranteed than it ever has been before. It'll be the number one retail bank in Switzerland and the number one provider of global private wealth services. We actually really like UBS and have been active traders of their senior bonds all around the world. On the first trading day after the deal was announced, UBS's share price fell 12% and its senior bond spreads jumped 100 basis points to around 350 basis points over German government bonds, which was absolutely absurd, given the Credit Suisse acquisition was incredibly positive from both a debt and equity perspective. And so we went into the market wanting to buy uh, UBS senior bonds on that day and the following days quite aggressively in US dollars and euros. And with 100 billion outstanding and spreads having moved more than 100 basis points on a single day, we thought there would have been many billions of dollars worth on the offer. Instead, it seemed like every bank in the world had got limit short UBS bonds. And in the first 24 hours of trying with 80 banks globally, I think we only picked up 13 million euros. Over several sessions, we were, however, able to accumulate with tremendous difficulty a circa 300 million euro exposure across multiple currencies and maturities. The interesting thing is that the Germans seem to have learned the lessons offered by the Swiss's uh, missteps. When the hedge funds then very predictably turn their crosshairs to Deutsche Bank, which is something we'd advise our clients they would do, and Deutsche's shares and bonds started to get hammered, we actually reached out to Deutsche's Australian, UK and global CEOs, the ECB and other regulators, and publicly and privately advised them to dramatically increase the speed and ferocity of their own reaction functions. There's no point guaranteeing bank deposits after the hedge funds have already triggered a deposit run. 
We argue that the German state reinforced the point that all German bank deposits are government guaranteed and actually consider a ban on the short selling of European bank securities as occurred during the GFC. Note that in Europe, there is an ongoing ban on naked short selling of European government bonds. As it transpired, coincidentally or otherwise, the German Chancellor came out publicly several hours later and basically declared that Deutsche was their national champion and not to be messed with. At about the same time, European regulators announced that they would be investigating short selling in bank CDS and bond markets for signs of market manipulation. This, of course, scared the bejesus out of the short sellers and Deutsche's stock and its bonds rallied their asses off. So, Chris, what are the key implications of events like Credit Suisse and Silicon Valley Bank for bank bondholders? Yeah, I think there are really important um, ramifications for depositors, bondholders and shareholders, yingers. First, we've seen much stronger government guarantees globally of bank deposits, period. If there is any question that these deposits weren't guaranteed, I think that's been thrown out the window. In Europe, for example, they have since announced they're going to formally introduce a new depositor preference regime. And all of this has been required because of the advent of internet-enabled digital banking, which has meant that you can see that savers can pull 42 billion US dollars out of a bank like Silicon Valley just on a single day, tapping away at their keyboard. Now in the GFC, people queued outside Northern Rock for days to pull their physical money out. And these high-velocity digital deposit runs basically require governments to very formally guarantee all deposits. And it's interesting to note, this is not just at the biggest institutions. I think uh, Silicon Valley was only the 18th largest US bank. And it's demonstrated that the collapse of a very small institution can actually propagate a systematic crisis unless regulators make clear that these government guarantees are in place. Uh, Profoundly, blanket government guarantees of deposits, by definition, make it very hard to have deposit runs again in the future. And deposit runs are the main vector through which banks fail. So this means that the probability of bank failures is very materially reduced, which in turn very materially reduces the probability of banks defaulting on their bonds. So there is zero doubt that perversely, the banking shenanigans in March with small US regional banks and Credit Suisse have really benefited all bank depositors and bank bondholders to the detriment of bank shareholders. Because make no mistake, all banks are going to be regulated more intensively. They're going to have to hold even more liquidity, probably more capital. They're going to be forced to take even less risk, particularly interest rate risk. And all of this will conspire to reduce shareholder returns on equity. So in totality, this is a big transfer of wealth from bank shareholders to bank depositors and bondholders. Now, it's more complex explaining what this means for bank hybrid holders. Credit Suisse's hybrids were very unusual compared to Aussie bank hybrids. When a bank fails, they didn't convert it to equity and dilute shareholders down, as occurs with Aussie bank hybrids. Instead, they got zeroed immediately, that is written off, imposing a 100% loss. Now, what was really weird was this actually happened before shareholders had been wiped out. It's a very rare case of the capital structure hierarchy being inverted. Normally, hybrid holders would always fare better than shareholders. And this can't happen in Australia, the US, uh, or in Europe where there are credit or no worse off protections, which basically enshrine the capital structure priorities or hierarchies. Under our Corporations Act and also APRA's regulations, they make it very clear that shareholders have to bear the first losses and all losses before uh, high-ranking securities wear losses. And since the Credit Suisse saga, global regulators have repeatedly come out and said they would not do the same thing and that they would force equity to be completely wiped out before hybrid securities bore any risk at all. It's not like Credit Suisse's shareholders did well. They still lost about 90% of their money, but they did salvage some value. 
In Australia, the hybrids issued by big banks and insurers have an automatic exchange term that switches them into equity when a bank fails. Banks and insurers actually pre-issue the equity required to do this when they issue the hybrids in question. They also secure all the board approvals required for equity conversion, such that if a bank ever did fail and conversion was required, it can be instantaneous. Credit Suisse's hybrids were also unusual because they didn't even allow partial write-off. It was literally a zero or hero in a bank non-viability event. They were just instantaneously and completely written off. Another difference was that Credit Suisse's hybrids were written off if its equity ratio fell to 7%. In Australia, our bank hybrids are converted into equity if and only if the bank is about to fail or its equity to ratio falls to a much lower 5.125%. Now, these bank hybrid write-downs and even write-downs or bail-ins of bonds are actually surprisingly common in Europe. We've seen many instances of hybrid and bond bail-ins or write-downs in countries like Portugal, Spain, Austria, Denmark, the UK, Greece, and now Switzerland. By way of contrast, Australia's banks, which are the highest rated banks in the world, they have the strongest capital ratios in the world, and they also hold by far the strongest liquidity buffers in the world, in our analysis, have of course never had any bond or hybrid bail-ins. In fact, since the introduction of the Basel III global banking regulations, no Aussie bank hybrid has ever missed a coupon payment, suffered a write-down, been converted into equity, or even not been repaid, which is a testament really to the strength of APRA's regulation. And APRA, our banking regulator, is absolutely regarded as the toughest regulator on earth. So all of this played out in March pretty vividly, whereas European bank hybrids fell some, you know, seven percentage points all the way to 15 percentage points on the back of Credit Suisse. Our hybrid market only ended the month down about 0.8%. And of course, we run the active Australian hybrid ETF for beta shares. I think this is the biggest uh, fixed income ETF in Australia. And it might be the biggest active ETF as well. I'm not 100% sure about that. It's about $2 billion in size, and it very materially outperformed the hybrid market uh, in Australia, so the broader market, only uh, suffering about a 0.5% decline in value over the month of March, net of all fees. And in April, it's recovered that fully. So we're basically up by that margin in April month to date. Crucially, in uh, HBRD, which is its ASX ticker, we massively de-risked the portfolio vis-a-vis the broader ASX hybrid market well before March 2023. So Kulaba, which is the active portfolio manager for HBRD, had cut its weight to Aussie bank hybrids from 99% to an all-time low of 74% by February this year, selling about $500 million of hybrids and buying uh, much safer and more liquid senior bonds and tier two bonds. Not because we were worried about anything like Credit Suisse, but simply because tier two and senior seem much more attractive on an RV basis compared to uh, Aussie bank hybrids. In fact, for a short period last year, we saw for the first time in Aussie or global banking history, a very unusual situation where hybrids were actually paying less credit spread than the safer, higher rated and more liquid tier two bonds issued by the same bank with the same maturity. More formally, five-year major bank hybrid spreads fell from about 3.5% over the bank bill swap rate down to about 2.2% over the bank bill swap rate. At the same time, major bank tier two bond spreads rose from about 1.25% over BBSW in 2021, all the way through to 2.8% above BBSW by the end of last year. And so it made sense to sell hybrids and buy tier two. Now, thankfully, that situation is now reversed. T2 spreads have fallen to about 2.3% over BBSW and hybrid spreads are back at around 2.8% above BBSW. Now, BBSW is about 3.66%. So you're earning a running yield on hybrids of about uh, 6.5% and about 6% on T2. So we're much more favorably disposed to hybrids than we were late last year and early this year. Actually, gross across all of our portfolios over the last 12 months, we actually sold about 2 billion of hybrids 
um, on the ASX, really, uh, I think, underscoring Ying as the exceptional liquidity that actually is available in that market, even though I think many would sort of presume that hybrids are relatively illiquid. And Chris, can you comment on whether we have seen any flight to quality? Yeah, Ying, as we definitely have. This has been a strong, I think, prevailing dynamic around the world. Basically, investors have been shifting capital away from US regional banks and European investment banks and into the strongest global banks. And accordingly, some of the biggest winners from this fracas have actually been the Aussie banks. They really have stuck out like bull's balls when it comes to their capital, liquidity and business model safety and the strength of our regulatory net going in. So, Chris, can we say that the banking crisis is now over? Yeah, I think, yes, that was a somewhat contrarian position that we put more or less at the end of March. We thought these were isolated shocks. They revealed a new systematic vulnerability in the global financial infrastructure, which is the impact of high-velocity digital deposit runs. That required a systematic response or panacea, which we've had in the form of much more robust government guarantees. And I think the risks in this cycle are now really going to shift uh, more vividly and clearly into the non-bank domain, because no one's actually been worried about massive loan losses or credit blow-ups on any of these banks' balance sheets. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, the problem was the absence of any interest rate hedging and its excessive concentration on tech. And there was nothing fundamentally wrong with Credit Suisse at all. Since the GFC, uh, regulators have been extremely tough in forcing banks to stop lending to the riskiest borrowers and particularly to radically reduce their exposures to the riskiest sectors, which in recessions have always been resi property development and commercial property. These are the two sectors that almost blew up ANZ and Westpac in the last default cycle and recession we've had here in Australia in 1991. And regulators generally have been very focused on ensuring that banks are only lending to very, very high quality borrowers and not to the racier zombie firms which account for about 15% of all listed companies and which don't have sufficient profitability to service the interest repayments on their debt, let alone principal repayments. So resi developers, commercial property owners, and the zombie companies have all had to go out and look for finance elsewhere. And whilst interest rates remained incredibly low during the post-2008 period, they were able to find lenders who were searching for yield or reaching for risk in the form of the high yield or sub-investment grade bond market, and of course, the private loan or private credit market. And we really saw high yield issuance and the advent of private credit investors absolutely explode post-2008. Only last week, I was talking to three different family offices, and they are each running in-house private credit funds, which is basically lending to these high-risk borrowers with exposure of about $150 million each. Now, to be clear, they're doing all of this in-house with a handful of people. That's very different to the extremely well-equipped and very sophisticated large non-bank lenders, you know, the likes of a Liberty or a Matrix, who are phenomenally well-resourced to assess these risks. So I think we're going to see a ongoing wave or multiple waves as default in high yield and private credit. Again, we're reading about this every day with Blackstone and Brookfield defaulting on their bonds. And every other week, it seems that some you know, medium-sized business in Australia is toppling over. Chris, shifting topics to something else that is one in mind for markets, monetary policy. How are you feeling about central banks pausing rates? Yeah, Inges, it's pretty interesting. I mean, bond markets are pricing in pauses for most central banks this year. And the market actually has them cutting rates later this year. So in the case of the Fed, uh, the market right now expects about 60 basis points to 70 basis points of rate cuts by January. 
And they also have a modest reduction in interest rates priced in for Australia by the end of the year. Markets do see uh, about one more hike left in this cycle before the cuts begin. And that applies to both Australia and the US. To our mind, that seems pretty bold and brave, given we have the unemployment rate in Australia and the US both sitting at multi-decade lows around 3.7%. Now, absent any financial cataclysm, we think it's heroic to assume that core inflation globally is going to straight line in a linear fashion down to the central bank's 2% targets. And we think it's more likely, given the evidence in 2023, of persistently sticky services inflation, that overall core inflation rates are going to remain well above the central bank's targets. And for us, that means one of two things. We either get protracted pauses where rates are held high through 24 or even 25, or just as likely we could get a second hiking cycle. It's really surprising to us that nobody's talking about a second hiking cycle. We've certainly been drumming the table about it, pointing out that in the RBA's last hiking cycle in 2009-10, they paused for five months and then hiked again. And in the hiking cycle before that, which was especially elongated, running from 2002 to 2008, the RBA paused no less than four times. And through those pauses were for 12 months or more, following which they started hiking again. So I really hope we're wrong. It would be lovely to think that inflation would crash down to 2% quite quickly. But we have never seen any cycle historically where very high levels of core inflation have mean reverted back to 2% targets without a very big increase in the unemployment rate. And we've yet to see any material loosening of labor markets in major developed economies. In fact, a lot of the evidence in 2023 today has suggested that some drivers of core inflation have either re-accelerated or are stabilizing at high rates. And bizarrely, in countries like Australia, we have the this really odd situation where spendthrift state governments, particularly the anomalies like New South Wales and Victoria, are running budget deficits that will probably be as big, if not bigger, than the Commonwealth deficit in this financial year and are running huge structural deficits at a time when they have 3% unemployment and should be producing substantial surpluses. So these state budgets are only fanning the inflationary flames. But we'll come back to that later. So I really think that clients and investors need to condition their minds for a period of rates being held high for a long time. They need to think about what that means for portfolio construction and asset allocation. Our view is a lot of asset classes have yet to adjust. You've seen almost no adjustment in unlisted commercial property, only a very partial adjustment in venture capital and private equity, partial adjustment in residential property. We haven't seen much movement at all in high yield bond spreads or private credit spreads, which is really surprising. Yeah, and just on that note, in all the past default cycles in the US, 2002, 2008, 11, 12, 15, 16, 2018, 2020, single B-rated US high-yield bonds will be paying you spreads or interest rate margins that are about six percentage points above what you earn on much safer triple B-rated investment grade bonds. And right now, that spread is only about three percentage points, so half what is normal during a default cycle. It's actually below the average through the cycle spread that you earn on high-yield over investment grade, which is about three and a half percent. And I think that's being driven by your liquidity. There's really nothing trading in high-yield primary or new issuance volumes in high-yield a fraction of their normal levels and the market just feels dead, but it's not being marked to market properly and investors not getting paid the spreads on high yield uh, that they really need in a default cycle. And we would really encourage people to think carefully for reaching for risk and searching for yield because they now have the benefit of the rise of risk-free yield. You can get term deposit rates paying you 4 to 5%, AAA and AA rated state government bonds are paying 4 to 5% interest rates 
senior bank bonds are paying four and a half to five. Tier two bonds are paying you five and a half to six and a half percent. And investment grade hybrids issued by the major banks are paying as much as six and a half to seven percent. So the search for yield is now dead. And we've seen consistently when Australian investors reach for risk, whether it be via virgin senior bonds that ended up being zeros during the pandemic or rushing out and trying to buy US and European bank hybrids, whether they're retail or in-store investors, they're clearly not expert enough to assess the risks. Amazingly, even after Credit Suisse, we saw some Aussie bond brokers pushing French bank hybrids to Aussie investors paying 9%. But unfortunately, these hybrids had exactly the same write-off terms as the Credit Suisse hybrids. They didn't convert into equity. They went straight to write-off. How you could sanely propose that uh, in the shadow of Credit Suisse, I just don't know. If and when we ever do venture down a capital structure, we make sure we're only investing with the safest banks on the planet that really have no risk of default or bail-in. And the problem we have with these foreign hybrids is that it's almost impossible to get comfortable with the local regulatory risks. The decisions that the UK, Swiss, French, Germans, Portuguese, Italian, Spanish, and Greek authorities make are all completely different. They have their own idiosyncratic approaches to write-downs, bail-in, and so on. And that's a huge level of complexity above and beyond the challenge of becoming absolutely expert on the default risks associated with all of these weaker European commercial and investment banks. Our portfolios tend to be actually quite concentrated on the strongest issuers globally. We tend to only have up to 150 positions at any given time. And managing, monitoring, and surveilling that takes all of our time. And that requires the effort of 35 full-time executives, including eight traders and PMs and 13 analysts, in addition to a very big finance risk and ops team, including a global chief risk officer and a global general counsel. Thanks, Chris. I want to highlight the amazing modelling on excess consumer savings buffers that our chief macro strategist, Kieran Davies, has done. Given this dynamic, how do you think the rate cycle will be impacted? Yeah, Katie's done some great work quantifying precisely how much savings consumers had hoarded during the pandemic through a combination of government handouts. And obviously there was massive fiscal stimulus, but also because you know savers were stuck at home in New South Wales and Victoria, they were locked at home and they couldn't go out and spend as they might normally. And what he's found is that the totality of the savings that households have hoarded on average represents about 20% of annual Aussie household income. And what's interesting is that whilst these savings are dominated by older folks who are wealthier, if we normalise by income, we find that the savings are very consistently held across all income quintiles. That is to say that the excess buffers, uh, the post-pandemic accumulated savings, are on average worth roughly 20% of annual income, irrespective of whether you're rich or poor or young or old. Now, crucially for monetary policy, if um, households start to eat into these savings, and when we look at the magnitude of the savings buffers around the world, what it's worth, the RBA has actually done its own work on this, and they've come up with almost exactly the same number that we came up with, which was 20% of annual income here in Australia. But if you look at the US and Europe, the savings buffers are a fair bit smaller, but certainly in the US, uh, consumers have really started sharply eroding those buffers, so they're spending them. And if the propensity is to spend these buffers, then that implies monetary policy will have to do a fair bit more heavy lifting than would otherwise be the case. 
but we really don't know whether the buffers are going to be spent or kept. Certainly, as more and more households become distressed as a result of the RBA's unprecedented interest rate shock, whereby it's lifted its cash rate by 3.5 percentage points. And obviously, not all of that's been passed through because a ton of Aussie borrowers have been on fixed rate loans that will roll to flooding rate over the next year or so. But these buffers do provide an important cushion, which, while positive for households, could further elongate the hiking cycle. Ultimately, however, it's an empirical question. We've never really seen buffers like this. We don't know what consumers are going to do with them. And Chris, Kieran has also done great modelling on the sources of inflation. Can you talk us through what his modelling shows? Yeah, so he basically builds models uh, for major countries around the world, focusing on Australia and the US, though, that decompose the sources of inflation. And this work shows very clearly that whilst initially the big bout of inflation that we experienced uh, during the onset of the pandemic was driven by supply chain blockages and supply side rigidities, the policy responses to the pandemic, namely extreme, arguably unprecedented fiscal and monetary policy stimulus, have in turn precipitated tremendous demand-side inflation. And this is very clear in Australia and the US. It means that once the supply side settles down, which it has basically done, and that supply side shock passes like a peak through a python, and the headline rates of inflation start to normalise, we are still left grappling with excess demand from the extreme fiscal and monetary stimulus that needs to be destroyed by tighter monetary and fiscal policy. And until that excess demand is destroyed, we're going to have elevated core inflation. So this is why the mission for the central banks is really all about demand destruction, higher unemployment rates, job losses, businesses failing, pushing those unemployment rates up above the so-called full employment or non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, the circa 5% levels that most people assess would be consistent with weaker wage growth and more sustainable inflation. Now, the RBA here in Australia has argued that the Nairo, as it's known, could be in the low 4% sort of territory. We have seen some weaker wages data here in Australia, which doesn't reconcile with the stronger wage data offshore. Hearings of the view that we will still see some stronger wage outcomes here locally. We obviously have an important inflation print coming up soon. But the bottom line is that uh, this modelling suggests that the inflation problem is not going away anytime soon and that we're either going to have to maintain high rates for a protracted period, potentially through to 2025, or uh, we may see second hiking cycles. Turning to another topic, Chris, sovereign debt. Now, it looks like the new New South Wales government wants to aggressively pay back debt. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, back in June 2021, Coolbar singularly sort of unveiled this, we would argue, highly devious plan by the New South Wales government at the time to issue between $20 billion and $40 billion of extra debt to insanely put that money into what was called a debt retirement fund to then invest that money in global equities on the basis of advice that Dominic Perrottet, who was treasurer at the time, had received from New South Wales Treasury and New South Wales's investment arm, T-Corp, that basically punting 20 to $40 billion on global equities was a good idea in June 21 because it was likely that interest rates would remain low for long and that inexorably equities would continue to appreciate. Now, obviously, since that time, we've seen a record in you know, shattering increase in interest rates and the cost of borrowing for state governments has rocketed through the roof. And at the same time, equities have been absolutely hammered. Now, you have to go back in time a little bit further to really understand this complex situation. Perite, when he uh, was appointed treasurer in 2018, had this great idea to his credit, which was to create this debt retirement fund. It actually sits in some inside something called the New South Wales Generations Fund or the NGF. And the debt retirement fund is really the only thing that the NGF master fund owned. In 2018, New South Wales was running budget surpluses. Taxpayer debt was fairly modest at $58 billion. 
and Perrottet started putting surpluses into the debt retirement fund and he would put asset sales like WestConnex, so sales of the key infrastructure into it as well. And the only legislative purpose of the debt retirement fund was to obviously reduce, not increase New South Wales taxpayer debt. It also had a legislative goal of helping protect New South Wales' triple N credit rating, which Perrottet lost from SP in December 2020, and reducing the cost of New South Wales borrowing. Now, in 2020, New South Wales paid just under 1% per annum when borrowing its money by issuing a standard 10 year bond. And today, that interest rate has jumped to about 43 to 4.4%. At the same time, since 2018, New South Wales debt has exploded from $58 billion to what is forecast this financial year will be about $160 billion. So you've had a $100 billion increase in New South Wales debt just in the space of circa five years. So naturally, as you know, investors in the state government bond market, when we discovered this, we told the banks and rating agencies, and I went to Periton, I said, hey, you've created this uh, debt retirement fund. It now has $26 billion in it. You've really got to start using it to repay debt. And I enlisted in this campaign the shadow treasurer in New South Wales, Daniel Mookie, who's a brilliant man, who's obviously now the new New South Wales treasurer because Labor won the election. And Mookie is absolutely the hardest working and smartest politician I've ever dealt with. And I've come across a few in my time. He was absolutely incredible and forensic in just pouring through the detail of this problem. In a sense, what New South Wales was proposing was to leverage up its balance sheet with 20 to 40 billion of extra debt in 2021 to punt equities. And I think the anger was really coming from T-Corp because they were trying to create a global funds management business. And they're actually paid management fees by New South Wales when New South Wales issues debt via T-Corp. Corp, interestingly, and then gives T-Corp's investment arm that money to punt on global markets. And when we looked into the average compensation at T-Corp, I think they had 180 staff that were earning on average, amazingly, $328,000 per person, much, much more than the salaries paid at the other uh, state debt issuance agency. Anyhow, Perite basically said he understood the problem and he agreed it was a problem and that he would try and address it. Because another problem here was that at the same time that New South Wales was running record budget deficits post the pandemic, somebody had convinced Perite to divert all state revenue royalties, which were worth billions a year, to the debt retirement fund so that T-Corp could use that money in global markets and be paid you know, for the pleasure of doing so. So really, this was about debt funding the debt retirement fund, which is really weird given the debt retirement fund was meant to reduce debt and we wanted to put a stock to it. So after about three months of sort of engaging with Perite, we weren't really getting any response that was substantive. And so we went public and Mookie went public and Daniel Mookie, the new New South Wales treasurer, ran a really aggressive campaign. We wrote a few articles and Perite, to his great credit, relented uh, and he did a few really important things. Firstly, he stopped diverting uh, the billions in royalties to the debt retirement fund, which would have to be debt funded because that's revenue the budget would otherwise not receive. And the budget was running massive deficits. So that was the first point. The second point was he basically ditched the plan of issuing shitloads of extra debt to allocate to this debt retirement fund. Thirdly, he actually drew down, as we had argued he should, $11 billion from the debt retirement fund to pay back preemptively New South Wales debt, which is one of the first times any government's really ever done that before. That still left $15 billion in the DRF. And Mookie had done a freedom of information search and discovered that some of this money was being used to lend capital to Russia, Saudi Arabia, China, and the United Arab Emirates, Panama, the Cayman Islands, other dodgy destinations. We wrote about this. Of course, nothing was done. And then when Russia invaded the Ukraine, New South Wales quickly spun 180 degrees and, and got rid of those loans. So the good news is that Labor won the election. Mookie's come to power and he's announced in numerous interviews that he's looking at using the $15 billion in the NGF 
to reduce New South Wales' debt. As I mentioned, it's going to be $160 billion this year, and it's actually forecast to hit an amazing $226 billion by 2026. At that time, if you refinance all New South Wales government debt at those prevailing interest rates, which you have to do over time anyway, you know, the interest bill for New South Wales will have increased to almost $10 billion a year. It's quite amazing. Even we only had $58 billion of debt back in 2018. Mookie has also talked about looking at a range of other special investment vehicles that T-Corp has engineered with taxpayer money. And I think there's a $40 billion in total, uh, including the $15 billion from the NGF's DRF. Uh, and there's probably some low-hanging fruit worth another $10 billion odd that you could use for debt repayment purposes. So there's potentially up to $25 billion of debt repayment that Mookie can do. I have no doubt that he's going to fix uh, New South Wales' fiscal issues. I think he's very, very fiscally responsible. He campaigned on a fiscal responsibility and debt reduction narrative. And I think he's emphatically a man of his word. And all the evidence since he's come to power is that he is focusing on these issues and intends to deliver, uh, which will be great, I think, for New South Wales taxpayers. It'll be great for the New South Wales budget. The New South Wales budget has actually been incredibly strong, massively outperforming all Treasury forecasts over the last three years. But the problem is that you know the Teal Keane, the preceding treasurer, was just spending like a drunken sailor, and not only spending all the revenue upside gains that the budget kept on delivering, but spending more than that. So the budget position was just getting worse and worse and worse. But I think Mookie's going to fix that. And I think that's a really important role model, actually, for Victoria. And so, Chris, what about Victoria? Yeah, yes. So Victoria is a bit of a basket case. If you look at the Aussie states and the feds, the federal budget's in pretty rude health. Uh, it could even and ultimately be in surplus in the next 12 months. We estimate the deficit, which was meant to be 37 billion in FY23, could be as small as five to 10 billion. Queensland's running a surplus. Western Australia's running a surplus. New South Wales has actually got an intrinsically strong budget, but just a huge amount of discretionary spend left by the Teal, Keane and Perite. But I'm pretty confident that Mookie will fix those problems. But Victoria is just completely out of control. In 2018, Victoria had $46 billion of debt. By the end of this financial year, they're forecasting that will have increased amazingly by almost $120 billion to $165 billion of total Victorian debt by 2023. And remember, they're only paying 1% or a little bit less than 1% interest on their 10-year debts in 2020. That interest rate is now 4.3%. And it looks really bad for Dan Andrews' management of the economy. Since he came to power in 2014, Victorian government debt has increased by an amazing 194%. And that's substantially more than any other big state. In New South Wales, debt's only increased by 116%. In Queensland, it's just a 60% increase. And in Western Australia, the increase has been 45%. It's even more astonishing when you think about it in dollar terms. Victoria's actually been borrowing more than New South Wales in FY23, despite the fact that New South Wales has a 35% larger economy and a 23% larger population. And then when you look at Victoria's deficits as a share of state GDP or what we call gross state product or GSP, it's the same story. Victoria's government is spending much more as a share of state output and basically running these huge discretionary or structural deficits, despite the fact that unemployment is at its lowest level in around half a century. Victoria's budget should be in surplus, but they continue to rack up this massive debt burden. And they're putting the state in a particularly parlous position in the event that there is actually a recession. God help us. Another example of the mismanagement is last year, they sold a big chunk of Vic Roads for $7.9 billion, And the Premier, Dan Andrews, and the Treasurer, Tim Pallas, told Victorians that they were doing this 
to repay the COVID debts that they'd racked up. But not a single dollar of that debt has been repaid. And in fact, that money at this point is planned to be punted on global markets. Now, I think Mookie liquidating the New South Wales Debt Retirement Fund to reduce debt will put enormous pressure on Victoria not to lie to their voters and to do the same thing. And I do think in their defence, the state governments were duped somewhat by the RBA, who in 2020 and 2021 actually went out and had meetings with all the state governments and actively encouraged them to borrow large sums and spend vast amounts on infrastructure because the RBA felt incorrectly that the economy would need that economic support. But obviously, with the biggest inflation crisis in 40 years, this is the worst possible time to be building infrastructure. So, Chris, shifting gears to what is usually everyone's favourite topic, housing, it looks like that Aussie house prices have stabilised since February. Why do you think this is the case? Yeah, Yingers, we've seen house prices after falling by their second largest margin on record, which at that time was in line with our forecast, stabilise in February. And that's broadly continued since that time. So national capital city prices fell peak to trough about 10%. Sydney prices were off about 14%. These were the two biggest falls in 40 years, or I should say the second biggest falls in 40 years. And they were tracking in line with our expectation for a total drawdown of 15 to 25% as a result of this RBA hiking cycle. Now we do see very strong seasonal house price gains typically in February, March, April, and May. So the market should have performed better and it has performed better. Uh, At the same time, we've also seen the record migration that we uh, forecast would materialize back in July, 2021 as borders opened up. And it is possible that this has provided a bit of an extra bid for housing. There have also been some reports of Chinese and Vietnamese money flowing back into the country. The reality is, however, that as the RBA has noted, borrowing capacity as a result of these rate hikes has shrunk by 30%. And we expect that to be reflected in price adjustments of about 15 to 25%. So we're sticking to our forecast for the time being. And we'll see whether the final leg of our forecast is vindicated later in the year. It's self-evident and obvious to most experts that the monetary policy transmission mechanism is a slowly moving beast. The RBA estimates it normally takes one to two years to flow through the economy. But this time around, we have the unusual situation where in the past, most Aussie home loans are variable rate. Coming into this hiking cycle, 40 to 50% of all loans were actually fixed rate. So we need those fixed rates to roll off into variable rates. And that dramatic increase in the interest servicing burden, which will jump from 2% to about 5% to flow through to the price discovery process in housing. What we do know is, according to the RBA, 15% of all Aussie borrowers now have negative cash flows. What that means is that their incomes aren't sufficient to cover their mortgage repayments and their essential living expenses, which does not all go well for housing demand. At the same time, we're also told by the RBA that 16% of Aussie borrowers are actually in a position where they can't refinance their home loans to cheaper rates simply because they couldn't meet the interest serviceability tests of a new loan. So they're locked in. Eventually, this should flow through to a supply side response in the form of a larger number of listings that could put further down pressure on prices. So Grace, across the capital structure, what bonds do you like right now? Yeah, we continue to like very high-grade senior bonds issued by two big-to-fail banks, the biggest global banks. We like tier two bonds issued by the same institutions, particularly where these bonds are trading at levels that are much wider than historical spreads. So Aussie five-year major bank senior bonds in March were trading at about 101 basis points over BBSW, whereas historically they would trade at about 79 over. And tier two bonds were trading 
uh, from the main banks with also five-year maturities at about 230 over, whereas normally they'd be trading at 189 over. And in 2021, they were trading as tight as 125 over. Coming back to senior bonds, uh, it's not uncommon for us to see those five-year major bank securities trade into the low 70s. Uh, and at various points since the GFC, they've traded in the high 60s. And unusually, because of the paucity of issuance in 2021, they traded down as low as 25 basis points over BBSW. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, we also like UBS senior paper. I guess at some point, if we get completely comfortable that there's going to be a merger consummated with Credit Suisse, uh, Credit Suisse senior bonds will come into the frame. And some of the big global US bank bonds uh, look quite attractive. So, Chris, how do bonds compare in US dollars, euro and Aussie dollars? Yeah, you can hedge back to Aussie dollars our local bank bonds issued in US dollars and euros are definitely offering more attractive spreads than the Aussie dollar equivalents. But that also comes with higher beta or higher volatility that one needs to be mindful of. Local spreads are also fairly attractive and we're definitely observing quite a seismic shift in asset allocation and portfolio construction where large institutional investors are seeking to capitalise on these very attractive risk-free yields or low-risk yields available in government bonds and bank senior and T2 markets. So we've seen a structural increase in demand for fixed income, and presumably these investors are pivoting away from commercial property, infrastructure, venture capital, private equity, high-yield debt, private credit, uh, and equities, because many of those asset classes are either trading on yields that are inferior to those that you can get on, say, Aussie major bank tier two paper, or they're not offering anything like a sufficient risk premium above it. Finally, Chris, the long-awaited RBA review has been released. Is there anything interesting in the recommendations, in your opinion? Yeah, I think the review is very, very good. I agree with all 51 recommendations. Uh, they are eminently sensible. You know, I worked at the RBA for a period of time, and there are various folks at Coolabar who have worked at the RBA or Treasury and, and had a lot of exposure to the RBA. And, and let's be clear, I mean, there are over a thousand really smart, relatively uh, hardworking people that sit inside Martin Place. They're absolutely trying to serve the country as best they can. Just as an aside, the reason I kind of paused somewhat on the relatively hardworking comment was in my first 12 months at Goldman Sachs in mergers and acquisitions and principal investments straight out of uni, I pulled 90 all-nighters. So worked two days consecutively without sleep. And then when I went to the RBA for a short stint prior to studying for a PhD at Cambridge University, which I didn't complete because I set up an asset management business whilst at Cambridge, I was a little shocked by the kind of nine to five culture of the RBA and the entire building really did clear out at 5 p.m. So notwithstanding the very talented and hardworking, generally speaking, people that are at the RBA, it does have an incredibly uh, hierarchical culture that is term or tenure based. It is an institution that really bred extreme hubris. There was very, very little internal debate and dissent, in my view, as executives were you know, incented to pander to their superiors in order to progress through that tenure based system. The RBA has been characteristically for decades, very, very resistant to accepting its decision-making errors or acknowledging shortcomings in its research or limitations and vulnerabilities in its monetary policy framework. And I think it's partly a function of the fact that the RBA was also massively resistant to external hires. So it was really focused on promoting its own gene pool. And this coincided with a period during the 1990s and 2000s, part of the GFC, where central bankers were really lionized as these all-seeing and all-knowing sort of Nostradamus types. You can only think back to 
the way that Alan Greenspan was deified during the 1990s and early 2000s. And this, I think, was because it accompanied a period of incredibly strong economic growth and low inflation, facilitated by the savage early 1990s recession. And it was a classic case of conflating skill and luck. The central bankers were imputed a lot of credit for delivering low inflation, high productivity, prosperity and growth over the 1990s and 2000s only to make lots of big graphic mistakes ever since the dawn of the 2008 crisis. In Australia, I think the hubris was more extreme because the wonder down under, just because of its antipodal position and its huge endowments of commodities and massive trading relationship with China, basically dodged any recession at all during the GFC. And our first recession was actually during the pandemic since, you know, all the way back to 1991. I remember the RBA was very proud of the fact that it didn't use quantitative easing during the GFC, didn't need to draw on bond buying program. There was a huge myth of Australian banking exceptionalism that grew out of the GFC. All the major bankers thought they were geniuses because they didn't blow up. But the truth is they're only three to six years behind their US and UK peers in terms of embracing subprime lending. Little old Adelaide Bank used to model itself on the failed UK bank Northern Rock in terms of its focus on subprime lending and securitization. And it's been well understood for decades that the RBA's board has basically been a rubber stamp on whatever the executive recommends. And you've got this conflict where the board is controlled by the governor and most of the board members are not economic experts. I think under Phil Lowe, he's done uh, a terrific job opening up the RBA. He's the most transparent governor we've ever had. He's massively improved their communications, extending what Glenn Stevens did. Uh, the organisation is much more open and transparent than it was under Ian McFarlane. I think Phil's also opened up board debates and fostered you know, dissenting views, although you do question how serious and legitimate that debate actually is and whether it's just window dressing. I think Phil was a, a brilliant academic economist, had a stellar career. Again, is a lovely human being, been very receptive to actually also engaging with outside experts. You know, we've communicated with him a bit over the years on complex policy matters, but I think he struggled with decision making under duress. Um, and there's been a, a kind of a few key snafus. One was obviously the promise not to raise rates till 2024. I never really understood the rationale for that, given you know, the inability to forecast with any accuracy beyond six to 12 months. And probably the biggest mistake was the sudden uh, decision not to defend their 2024 yield curve target intra-month, effectively prejudging the board decision the following month in November 2021 to dump the yield curve target. The yield curve target itself worked and was fine, and they could have changed the rate on the yield curve target, which would have been probably a lot better, and then phased it out over time much as the Bank of Japan have done. But the sudden exit without any explanation really blew up the RBA's credibility globally, um, both with other central banks and with bond markets. And it savagely disrupted the Aussie interest rate and swaps markets for you know one to two years thereafter. So I think the idea of having a dedicated monetary policy committee to make monetary policy decisions makes a lot of sense with committed professionals who are economic and market experts. I think the idea of having an operating board to run the bank and not chaired by the government was a great idea. Bringing a COO is a great idea. And then there are a lot of technical details that the um, review has recommended, which I agree with. So I think the review is a very positive initiative. It'll make the bank a lot stronger and more durable and will definitely, I think, help improve the efficacy of the decision-making process. I think there's a bit of a debate about, you know, was the board 
actively engaged in discussions and analysis or was it a rubber stamp? I think that changed over time. I think you know, under McFarlane, there was rubber stamp. Under Glenn Stevens, it was rubber stamp up until perhaps the very latter part of his tenure. But I do think under Phil, board meetings have been much more you know, vigorous and actively debated. But there is still this kind of question of the balance of power in those board meetings with the executive controlling all the analysis, research and recommendations. And there's no doubt, I think, a monetary policy committee at the margin would generate superior decisions. Although having said that, academic economists are not exactly known for being the best decision makers. So I don't think it should be chock a block full of academic economists. I think what we need are really good economic and financial market decision makers. Uh, Mark Barnaba, who was on the board, who you know, previously worked at Macquarie Bank, you know, very successful investment banker, deputy chair of Fortescue. He's actually a perfect example of someone who'd be really good, I think, on the monetary policy committee. I wouldn't be hung up on uh, having academics. I think that could be a disaster. And that's it. Well, listen, thanks everyone for listening. Um, we really appreciate it. Hopefully you enjoyed the Q&A format. And if you ever want to reach out to us, don't hesitate. Info at callbycapital.com if you want to send questions, if you need to ask, feel free. And look forward to hearing from you soon and engaging with you next month. Thank you. does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.